Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Marketing Mini Bytes podcast. Today, I've got on Katie Traxon, who's the board director at the European Sponsorship Association and the founder at Good Vibes Only Talent. Welcome, Katie. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Good, thanks. How, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very excited about what's going to happen in the next 20 minutes. Good, good. I think a lot of audience will be excited to, to hear from you. You've got uh, quite a, an interesting marketing past and, and very much uh, invested in kind of the motorsport world, which I'm super excited about and, and one of the reasons why it's great to have you on the show. Um, I guess as, as a kind of start of a TED, do you want to tell the audience maybe a little bit about you, how you kickstarted your career in marketing and more particularly the kind of how you kickstarted a career in, in motorsport marketing, you know, why motorsport? Yeah, I can't say I have the best, oh, you should do what I did uh, story. Basically, I left university and uh, I'd got a degree in English language and literature. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but knew I didn't want to do a kind of very prescriptive graduate career where everything for the next three years was mapped out. I kind of wanted a maximum risk, maximum reward type situation. Um, but while I was working out what to do, went back to work in Waterstones, which is where I'd worked before I went to uni, saw an advertisement in a local newspaper for a PA, for a, a director in a business. Didn't even say what business, what industry, but I thought, okay, I could do that. So I applied for the job, went in, had my interview, left. For about two weeks, sat looking at my phone every three seconds, nothing eventually called up and went you know so I haven't been thinking about this at all in the interim two weeks since we met one another but it just crossed my mind that you haven't got back to me about whether you were going to give me that PA job and um, the guy said no you would be a terrible PA but my uh, communications officer in the world rally championship is about to go on maternity leave and I actually reckon you could have a crack at that what do you think? Six months, sink or swim. It's not an entry level position, but you know, get on a plane, go to Sweden. It'll be minus 30. You'll be working wow. 20 hour days. He didn't say this transparently. Um, <laughs> what do you say? And I jumped in feet first and have kind of never looked back. Wow. What a start. I think, I think it's interesting. A lot of people almost just jump in at the deep end and maybe don't realize until later on what they've let themselves in for, but it sounds awesome. Is, is motorsport something you've always been really interested and passionate about or is it kind of something, again, you kind of fell into? It's something that has always been in my life. So I don't remember a time when Grand Prix weren't on in my family home. My dad used to go and do club racing at circuits at the weekends and I would kind of stand by a fence when I was too small to go in the pit lane with my red stopwatch and clipboard taking split times. You can see behind me, hang on, there you go. Um, it's actually a signed picture of Ayrton Senna in the middle of my living room. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, which was That's pretty a, special. a housewarming present um, because it used to be my mom's when I bought my first home. So I think it's fair to say that motorsport has been a big feature in my life for a long time. Mm. Absolutely. That's, in, that's incredible. And then uh, I guess as part of that, you kind of landed a job at Formula E, didn't you, as, as chief communication officer? How, how was that? And how did you get involved in Formula E? It's such a prestigious thing to be involved with it really isn't it well it's funny because I quite confidently said when I was about 27 or 28 that I had retired from motorsport I'd retired from traveling over 150 days a year and I'd had like the most wild fantastic ride ever and I wasn't going to go back to it it was pastures new and I even said this in my interview at Formula E and then kind of three weeks later was saying no actually I think I really would like to come and can I work for your organization um, but the reason for that is actually because Formulary is 
quite different to other motorsports. So obviously within motorsport, you have different formulas anyway. Um, and, and the difference with Formula E is that it's all electric. But I think mm. what Formula E stands for and what it's trying to achieve in the world is is apart from any other motorsport. And it kind of being founded with this purpose um, to counteract climate change by accelerating the adoption of electric vehicles and very much being tailored to the next generation as, as a marketer, that's a really fascinating proposition. I mean, being able to understand a generation that unfortunately I'm too old now to be part of <laughs> and to figure out what makes them care, what makes them tick, how, how to get them engaged when they're quite different, you know, really looking at Gen Z, mm. even to millennials. Uh, it, was, it was just a challenge too good to resist. Yeah, sounds awesome. And I think one thing as well in terms of challenges was the whole piece during COVID. So I remember when I was, I was scrolling through my Facebook feed and I saw a lot of Formula E on my Facebook and a lot of the kind of the, the gamification wasn't in a way where everything went virtual and you were doing races in the, the online world as opposed to the real world. Because I, I can imagine you had to stop that. And that was really interesting in terms of how you pivoted in such a unique way. A lot of people didn't do that. Um, so So how did that go? Did that kind of capture the audience that you expected it to? And um, yeah, how did it go? Well, for me personally, that was my first week. I arrived on a oh, Monday wow. and I was told, so this week we're um, postponing our calendar, we're launching our esports activity and our partnership with UNICEF. Go! <laughs> <laughs> wow, um, what a first week. So that was very much, again, went, uh, into the deep end, but hopefully slightly more experienced than I was when I was uh, 21, like a rabbit in the headlights at the World Rally Championship. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, as somebody, obviously, I don't think you can probably function as a marketer and certainly not a sports marketer nowadays and not be aware of esports. But I certainly was not and am not an expert in esports. And sim racing is a is a particular kind of interesting space because it, it is racing. It's the same thing that you're doing just virtually. Um, mm. And you know, if you have a full kind of rig setup, it's literally the same actions and everything. You've got pedals, you've got a steering wheel. It, it's much closer than if you compare like playing football to playing FIFA. Um, and I think, yeah, it was something definitely for that point in time that was extremely necessary for everybody to get that sense of being part of a community, being fans. You know, Formula E had all of its real life racing drivers taking part in that. Um, mm. But I also think, again, to that point about the next generation audience, obviously they're not all esports fans, but Twitch is a massive social platform for that generation. And it is something much more embedded in their lives as real competitive sport than I think it is for kind of older generations where it was much more recreational. So it's a massive mm -hmm. learning curve for me and something that I think definitely having launched during COVID will happily sit alongside real life racing in many different motorsports pretty much indefinitely. Yeah, I'm surprised it's not been done years ago, but it's probably one of those things that COVID's just almost allowed to some regards, just to, uh, allowing marketers to think outside the box a little bit. But to your point before about it's the same thing where you've got a pedal and steering wheel, it's the same thing in terms of the production as well, right? You had mm. top end presenters, you kind of had like the camera angles. It was it was the real deal, really. And uh, I know a lot of people thoroughly enjoyed it. So, I, you know, I'd probably say that was project success. Yeah, yeah. Um, like I even made a comment once, this was awful, so never make this comment to anyone. If anybody's listening, don't do this, okay? Um, I went, 
oh, esports photography. So what's that like taking a screenshot of the video game? <laughs> it's an entire artistic process. <laughs> It yeah. is not me doing kind of command shift three and then publishing it on my social media channels. Mm. I was astonished to find there's this whole kind of creative artistic side to it. And you basically have every element that you have in real life sport. Mm, absolutely. You probably had like a, like a TV studio or something very similar as well, right? Where you've got people controlling the different camera angles and the whole lot. In terms of when you were actually marketing that out to people, did you just put it all across social media or did you have a certain angle to try and attract those Gen Z people? So I think there were many different things and um, at Formula E marketing was split into three teams. There was a brand team, a media team and a communications team. But in my team, it was very much about engaging the press with what we were doing. And, you know, to our good fortune in that capacity, when there's no real life sport taking place, there are column inches and web pages to be filled. So that's a really good opportunity, even if you're starting at zero, to kind of get people involved and get them writing about what you're doing. Mm. Again, because we were able to get the drivers involved because they weren't racing on real life race circuits, that that was a big help. Um, but one of the big things for us was how we worked with talent. And that is everything from, I mentioned Twitch, Twitch co-streamers. I actually learned what Twitch co-streamers were through our, <laughs> our race at home challenge. Um, right to, as you say, using presenters and pundits that are recognized in motorsport. And then also getting kind of celebrity talent. There's actually quite a high barrier to entry to be able to do sim racing. So it's not just anybody can jump on and mm. be competitive, but nonetheless getting people with kind of strong online communities engaged and talking about what we were doing. Awesome. And I know you quite, uh, you're quite uh, involved with kind of influences and trying to make sure that they're getting the best experience because it, it, it's really important for the brand as well. And it's really important that they're getting all the right information to make sure that they're demonstrating the brand in the, in the best light, isn't it? Rather than just almost having them on as a, a way to generate new visibility, essentially. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you probably don't want to get me started on this because I might go on for a long time, but in, in my mind, um, online influencers aren't a paid media channel um they're an earned media channel but you remunerate them for their skills in the same way you would any other creative um in the same way you would a photographer a videographer a, a designer whoever it is because in order to create a piece of content that will resonate with their community yes you need your input and a brilliant brief which you kind of alluded to but you also need their input as creators and in understanding what will make an impact on their community. And I think kind of a, a smash and grab as one of my team used to call it, where you go in and you say, oh, I'll give you this cash, just post this. It's gonna fall flat. Um, mm. So yes, I've been doing quite a lot in that space and continue to, but we'll wait to come to that in due course. <laughs> <laughs> No, it sounds good. And yeah, we'll touch back on that in a few minutes. But in terms of looking back at your Formula E kind of career then or like wait, when you were there, what was the most proudest point for you? What was the, the project you think, wow, that, that was something I want to carry through for the rest of my career? Or was there anything that you enjoyed the most whilst you were there? Um, I think there are a few things, to be honest, and I'll make them all quick. But um, one of them, so I, I just touched on the fact that the marketing team was made up of three executives who kind of collaborated. And I think that structure was um, kind of pretty fantastic that our, our boss put into place because it 
kind of diversified the responsibility and the risk, gave you people to collaborate with as peers, which I think is always essential and makes you, you better in your job. And as you're growing kind of a young business, it also allowed different expertise. Because if you have kind of one CMO trying to oversee all of that, it's very unlikely they're going to be an expert in an entire brand refresh and visual identity and PR and talent and broadcaster relationships and, and, and. So I think that was really fantastic. And I learned a huge amount from the other two people who I was working with there, um, Henry Chilcott and Artie Debas. I'm sure there are plenty of people listening who would have come across them. The second thing is something called uh, Formulary Talent Call, which I was extremely proud of because it came from my team. And this was about creating opportunities for underrepresented groups kind of in youth to have entry points into motorsport and into international motorsport that they otherwise wouldn't have had, where we gave them opportunities just based on talent, so completely meritocratic, to join the sport. And the first one was for a presenter, and we took on a woman called Darren Adetosier, who's still there. The second one was for a young filmmaker, which is kind of playing out now, and hopefully that will go on for a long time. And the third thing I would touch on is just a kind of personal achievement for me in that my knowledge of sustainability, and this is entirely selfish, but it deepened hugely. I think if when I started at Formula E, I knew I wasn't an expert, but I would have thought I was quite well informed just being able to talk to you about environmental sustainability. And when mm. our sustainability director kind of sat me down and said, no, 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 no sustainability is environmental, economic, social. It's how those three work together as a triple bottom line. It's expanding into being technological. It includes inclusivity. My mind was kind of blown and I then went on this journey of discovery to really understand what sustainability was about, kind of as the UN would talk about it. And that's probably one of the big kind of intellectual takeouts for me from that role. Wow. I think I think that's incredible. I think it, as long as you come away from a role with becoming a better person, that's all you can ask for, really, isn't it? I know people learn a lot of technical trends and they listen to podcasts and listen to things, but as long as you come out with a bit of a broader mindset, that's that's the best outcome. So that's awesome. And speaking of teams, before you know, you said that was a great team. You've kind of when you went to when you were in uh, We Are Fearless Agency, you I think that team was considerably smaller, wasn't it? I think uh, so. How was that working with a much smaller team as opposed to a team of hundreds, if not thousands? So um, permanent staff, it was about a quarter of the size of, of Formula E. And, um, and I joined We Are Fearless when it was tiny. Um, I think it was under a year old when I joined. And they'd just won their first kind of massive client with, with Bridgestone Tires and their Worldwide Olympic Partnership. Um, but it was so wonderful to be able to be part of everything as, as the company grew. And the amount that you learn is phenomenal because I guess the reason I wanted to go to Formula E was because I was going to have a very different experience reporting into a kind of well-known business person in the world of international sport and being able to learn from him, learn from my peers, um, learn from our large multinational partners, host cities, broadcasters, etc. But on the flip side, when I was at We Are Fearless, you have the opportunity to have a breadth of experience rather than going kind of very deep into one area. And that breadth, I mean... Most things that I know about how resourcing works, finance, the legals behind running a business, setting up scopes for clients, briefs, you had to be able to do the whole lot. And it's simply mm. the best foundation that you could ever have. Yeah, 
I've heard that from a lot of people where because when you're in an agency, you work with a, such a vast range of different companies that you almost uh, dip your toe in at least one client for every industry over, over a career. Um, what, what would you say are the main kind of differences for you between when you were working in-house uh, versus working for an agency? Um, so it's interesting. So the agency that I was working for was an independent agency, which is obviously different if you work for a kind of massive agency group. Mm. And one of the things that I've always kept in mind throughout my career, but is very uh, noticeable when you work in an agency like that, is that you are working day to day reporting into the founder of that business. And the success of that business, the existence of it is down to what you do when you, you show up at work every day. And so your sense of kind of being embedded into it and the obligation you have to the overall mission, potentially even the emotional connection, is, is really deep. And while I don't advise by any means that people ever compromise on work-life balance, and this is very much do as I say, don't do as I do, there were some amazing times at honestly two o'clock in the morning when you've all had a takeaway and you're just about there and you know that you're going to get the idea if you just put half an hour more in and you're mildly delirious but you know that when the pitch does come through you can take some time off after that and and that kind of sense of as, as you said with different clients you know learning a new business getting yourself right into it for the pitch are you going to win the thrill of that then having to deliver on what you've promised is very different to being in a, a business which would be one of those clients and is on its mm. track and has its mission and you are trying to be one important cog kind of in this in this larger mechanism. Um, mm. I, mean, I would advise to most people, if you have the chance to work in a brand and an agency, do both. If you have the chance to work private sector and public sector, do both. And if you're in sport and you get the chance to work in a rights holder as well, try that. Awesome. That is great advice. I think I'm with you on that. Certainly when I know uh, from agency side experience, there's that almost roller coaster of emotions, isn't there? There's, you know, you might miss a client, you might get another client, you might, uh, it's it's a constant battle of great wins and losses to balance it out. But you're always learning, you're always on the upward trajectory, which is what I love and, and have really good fond memories of. One of the, the, I guess, the awesome projects that I know you worked on when, when you were there was on the Olympics, wasn't it? Could you tell the viewers a little bit about um, what you did in that? Because that sounded epic. Yeah, I mean, so that was <laughs> that was the big hook when I interviewed, the fact that I was going right. to get to work on the Olympics because, fortunately, we're just past Olympics, so I can't bore you to tears. But during the weeks of the Olympics, every, uh, you know, four or this time five years, I learn every factoid. I become an obsessive fan of every sport that I don't engage with for the years in between. Like you name it, you can't walk into a room with me without me having something really trivial that I think is essential <laughs> to impart in that moment. So given the opportunity to work on it was, was just unbelievable. And the interesting thing about Bridgestone was that they had decided to activate throughout the four-year cycle. And so whereas, you know, the Olympics the entire world's eyes turn to the Olympics when they're mm. on and a lot of brands will activate their partnership in that space. We were trying to keep it going throughout the cycle. Um, and that was really interesting because it gives you the chance to get under the skin of some of the athletes' personalities in between just being in the heat of competition. And what Bridgestone really wanted through their campaign was to create an emotional connection with audiences 
based on the fact that their product can be seen, while utterly essential, uh, essential as pretty functional. And they did that through creating a correlation between your tyres being the thing that keeps you safe and on track in life's journeys. Like the tyres are the only part of your car that touches the road. So like imagine how important they are to your journeys. And then kind of comparing that with this, this Olympic mindset of the struggle, not the triumph. It's the taking part, not the winning. And how you need to overcome those obstacles. And, and We Are Fearless created this campaign, the name before I joined, called Chase Your Dream No Matter What. And told those stories across seven markets in the end. And we got to work with amazing talent. And then we saw Gianmarco Tamberi, one of our Italian ambassadors, have what I thought was the moment of the Tokyo Olympics when they decided to share the high jump gold because the kind of camaraderie and spirit was was more important than the competition in that final wow. moment. What a moment. It sounds incredible. And was that kind of over when you said you worked, was that like over the four years you did that campaign then? Or was that very much you just worked on yeah. just the Olympics part of it? Uh, no, so that was throughout throughout my my time at We Are Fearless. I worked on that campaign and then other clients at the same time because We Are Fearless right. basically was a full service agency for Bridgestone. So it did PR, digital, activation, creative, all the brand films. So it, it really was um, something that all of us were very invested in. Wow. I know as well, when I've been an agency, you just invest yourself, the, your whole being into this client when you're working with them, don't you? And it, it's uh, you get so much out of it. And I think the client gets so much out of it and they appreciate when you're giving them so much time and energy. So um, that sounds that sounds fantastic. And, and kind of thinking where you are now. So you've got a new business, you've got Good Vibes Only Talent. Can you tell us a little bit about that, what you do? And, and this is, might be the, the sort of the link where the viewers go, oh, yeah, we said we were going to bring that up. This is now the time, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I need to deliver now. I need to say something <laughs> that makes some sense. Um, yeah, good vibes only. So basically, I left Formula E slightly prematurely. So I hadn't, I had, or I had intended to stay longer than I did when I joined. But unfortunately, COVID and the travel requirements and the kind of added being in quarantine when you got back and the PCR tests and that being back to back and various situations in my private life where I did prioritize work-life balance meant that I needed to take a step back sooner than anticipated. However, as I'm sure you know, and most other people know, in the first kind of year you've been in a job, you just throw everything at it to get it set up for the future. And it's kind of blood, sweat, tears. And I wasn't really in a headspace stepping back, as I say, earlier than I thought I would to go straight into another big job and, and be able to give as much as I feel you should give in that scenario. So I decided to take six weeks off and then I thought, OK, I'll, I'll consult for the rest of the year. And in that six weeks, instead, I ended up founding a business and and launching it and it was kind of fortuitous I had um I decided to consult basically because you know I'm sure all of us like to think we do a good job in what we do but I for many years had seen kind of the absolute best results in what I did and what I was doing with talent and how I was working with talent right through from when I ran Shakespeare campaign with the British Council in 2016 through to what I was doing at We Are Fearless and then and then at Formula E and so I thought oh, great I'll I'll consult in this space and um some brands started to chat to me and that seemed good and then some of the talent who I'd worked with for years came to me and said but why don't you found a talent agency and why don't you sign talent to it as well 
And obviously you have to keep very much church and state. You can't just, if you represent talent, force every brand that you know to work with them. You have to make sure they've got mm. the right people. But there certainly is a huge amount of synergy between doing the two at once. And um, aside from being a fan of Jerry Maguire, I hadn't really thought I was qualified to be an agent in any kind, uh, in any way. Um, but when I looked at it, I guess I had been doing everything from the other side of the negotiation. And so, so why not, why not switch? And hmm. what people were telling me was that there were some kind of like old fashioned practices in certain parts of, of the talent industry, which were still relatively transactional and um, relatively formulaic. And as with many things in life now, people were looking for bespoke, more human solutions. And we hopefully will be able to offer that, whether it be to brands or to our talent. And I'm waiting to see what happens. At the moment, it's going better than I could have dreamt of, but it could be a bubble. But if it is, I would have still had the best time ever. Great. Great. So how do you make sure that you're pairing the right businesses with, with the right creators? So it's an interesting question because I think it's art and science. You, you need the quantitative element. So, okay, who is the business's audience? Who is the creator's audience? Where is the overlap? Is this creator going to appeal to existing audiences, introduce you to new audiences? Are they going to bring you reach or engagement or conversion to fandom or loyalty, depending on what you're trying to achieve through your business's objectives? But there's also a large qualitative element of the values of the business and the values of the creators and also what can be delivered. And therefore, there's, you know, how good are these people to work with? How much do they over deliver? How believable is it that they would be working with your brand and that, that they really espouse the same kind of principles that, that you do as an organization and iterating over time? Because you also see as you work together, what works well and, and what could be better. But I think hmm. it isn't as simple as either just saying, oh, okay, I know this person would be great for you. That's probably too qualitative, but hmm. equally it's not, well, I've got this fantastic spreadsheet and I've popped all the information in so I know for a fact that these people are best for you. It's probably more that of the top 10 people on your spreadsheet, numbers two, six, and nine might be great for you when you layer the, the art kind of over the science. And that comes from having relationships and asking the right questions to the brands and having relationships and asking the right questions to the talent. Awesome. Yeah, I know relationships in, in an industry like that is very, very important. I've worked with a few people and they said without knowing the right people at the right place, they, they wouldn't be there because you know, you've got, they've got the talent, but they've just got nowhere to really share it or provide that voice to. So really interesting words. And, and thinking forwards as well, obviously this, this business will probably take a good chunk of your time and your business. Like you say, when you're first in a role, you're going to give it your all. Is that what you're focused on in 2021 and beyond? Or have you got kind of other challenges as well that you're kind of mapping out? Um, at the moment, there's a lot going into Good Vibes Only. <laughs> Um, and please, any listeners on Instagram at Good Vibes Only Talent, I needed to say that. And you, Chris. But uh, but also, as you mentioned at the start, I'm a board director at the European Sponsorship Association. I kind of lead on their uh, diversity agenda, as well as being a, a general board director. I have been a future leader at WACL, and I'm hoping to convert that into being a kind of 
senior whackler in due course. Um, and I also work with the, the PRCA on their diversity work. So there's always things going on in the background and then lots going on in the foreground. And at some point I need to sleep. But something that I've brought up a few times now, and I think is important coming out of COVID as well, is just everybody kind of gaining or regaining their psychological equilibrium on the other side of COVID as well. And making sure that they don't go from a kind of hamster wheel existence pre-COVID to, whoa, what is this hiatus, to back into the hamster wheel. Mm. Um, so I will be trying to make sure that I heed my own advice on that. Great. And just as a bit of a side note as well, do you tend to, do you have an office or do you, do you tend to do a lot of work from home as I guess as it were? Because a lot of people have very different views on it. So I'm interested to understand your take. So I'm working from home now. I mean, my career has been so varied. When I was working in motorsport in the first place, after a couple of years, the head the uh, headquarters of where I was reporting to wasn't in the UK. So I used to work from home and then travel to events anyway. Then when I went to BP, I was always in the office um, and then had a kind of hybrid thing at the British Council, always in the office at We Are Fearless, never in the office at Formula E. And honestly, I'm, I'm not one for, as has been coined, attendeeism. I think you're given a job to do and you deliver on the job and how you find to deliver on that job is, is down to you. And of course, not being in an office for a meeting when your clients in the office doesn't work but not being in the office if it's just for the sake of sitting at a desk and you've traveled two hours to get there and two hours to go home which even if you split it 50 50 could give a couple of extra hours to your employer and a couple of extra hours to you in your day seems a bit pointless so i'm i'm definitely not for everyone hurrying back to offices but i do like people and sometimes i have even missed meetings <laughs> mm. I'm with you on that one. I think there's definitely been those experiences, almost like what I would call coffee conversations, where it's just those little nuggets of information that you go, actually, I didn't know that if we were just to have a very formulaic strategic teams meeting. So I've definitely kind of picked up on that from from having those conversations. But like you say, if you don't need to, if you don't need to be in the office, why commute four hours? Um, so there's definitely those pros and cons for sure. Um, just before we let you go, then uh, really interested to understand if there's any kind of ways of which you keep on top of the latest trends are there any interesting books or podcasts or news articles anything that you kind of listen to or on your commute or anything that, that you'd advise to our listeners yes absolutely and I, this is something about agency life when you work in an agency you are listening and reading and learning all the time because you want to understand about everything happening with any brand that could come through the door and i think you see that a lot less brand and rights hold aside and I absolutely think it made my career getting into that habit so podcasts I my favorite industry podcast is the one from amazing if called squiggly careers I'm sure lots of you have listened to it um books what do I think um so a book that I would recommend to anyone is Alistair Campbell's winners I read it in about a day. It starts off explaining objective wow. strategy tactics and then goes into this amazing communications examples and I think he's right at the top of the communications industry. Happy to debate it, but I've got his back. Um, not that he knows me. Um, I also think that awards are a really useful thing. So seeing who's won awards, who was nominated for awards, looking at the case studies, you know, um, the 8th of September, the Sports Industry Awards are coming up. And obviously also, because I'm from sport, we've got the Leaders Conference coming soon, I think at the end of September. Um, and then the last thing I would say is education. So... 
I'm a bit biased because I'm an examiner for the European Sponsorship Association's um, diploma, which is the only postgraduate sponsorship qualification in the world. I've done that plug. But I've also heard really good things from team members about Mark Ritson's mini MBA. Uh, so there you okay. go. And if people want more recommendations, Great. I can be boring for hours. <laughs> so the list sounds endless but we'll definitely get all of those added onto the show notes for sure and if there's anything else that you think of in the meantime we'll add it all on the more the better uh, no it's been been great to talk to you today katie all the best sounds really exciting with what you're up to and uh, i'm sure we'll catch up soon thank you and good luck with the podcast i think it's going to be a great success thanks very much